over there. As you know, as I've been preaching, I've been kind of in this Mark book. I've been going into it a lot. You've already heard me tell you how much I love this book of the Bible and what it means to me. So I won't go back there. But in this, uh, you know, you see a lot of ministry that happens in the home. And I do want to invite you, we've been talking about small groups. That's something that I believe in. It's part of the heart of Pastor John and our leadership that our church be involved in a small group, that you be involved in a small localized group of people where you share life together, where the things in life are shared and inhabited with others, that you have a brother and a sister in this place that you connect with deeply. And the thing is, as we get so many people in this room, it's hard to connect more and more. You find that harder and harder to connect. And so it's imperative that we become smaller and smaller in how we live our life with each other. And you'll see this naturally happens. And so why not jump into the natural natural motions and flows? And um, some of you have already jumped in and you've started doing this. You've had people over in your home. You've pulled people together. In fact, some of these were already going before we even announced doing small groups, these connect groups. And these are a great thing. And so what I, would, what I want to ask you to do, if you have already started this, next Sunday in the grill, I want to host the luncheon. I want to meet with you. I want to know what we're doing. I want us to start sharing our stories of how these things have started. And I want us to be good at sharing our stories of how God is working in our church. Because Sunday mornings is not it. Amen? This isn't just a Sunday gathering. But if we're going to really deep in, dive deep into worship over these next few weeks, then we have to have a Romans 12, one approach to this, that everything we do is worship. It's not just a song. It's more than a song. It goes way much deeper than just lyrics on a screen. That's just an expression. And so as we move tighter with these groups, as we live in community, we're going to see a greater expression of our church emerge and flow out. And I want you to be a part of that. And so if you've talked about starting one, you've been maybe toying with the idea, you've talked with your wife or with a, um, a friend, and you haven't quite done it yet, will you meet me next Sunday in the grill after church? All right, jumping right along till we get to this. <laughs> you will never experience anything like the touch of God on your heart. You will never experience anything like that. Nothing can equal the revelation to your soul, the comfort that you receive from his voice, the sense of his realness, the warmth of his acceptance. There's nothing that will compare to that. You see, faith is not an exercise of knowledge in scripture because the words of scripture must be accompanied with power. Because if it was just enough, then Jesus could have come and died. But he said, I must go back so that I can send the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you can be filled with power. There's a power that gets connected with our understanding and knowledge of God, and that's what becomes real faith. Because where true faith exists, there is a display of that evidence of what faith is powered by. And if you have a true revelation of God, that closeness and that feeling of, of his delight will cause a response on your behalf. And that response is our worship. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I, I would often teach on worship to our, our teenagers because I want them to understand what worship is. Because it's important early on that we understand that worship is not just songs, Right? And the reason why we have to keep driving that is because the way our Sunday mornings are, are designed, we have a block in our service where we do music and we call it worship. And it is worship, but that's not the definition of worship. That's not where worship is defined and pulled into. And so I, I wanted to give my young people an idea of how do we put our minds around worship and I just would simply say that worship is who you are, at the essence of your being, at the core of who you are, the deep down recesses of you, who you are connecting with who God is. And I would say worship is that simple. 
Because when you connect with God, when you feel that experience, that closeness, that comfort, when you have an encounter with Jesus, you'll never forget it. When you have an encounter with Jesus, you will never be the same. When you encounter God, your faith, your heart will come alive. And a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Because you remember that moment when you fell to your knees and you cried out, Oh, what a wretch am I. And Jesus, why would you look on me? Where you were confronted with your past and you looked at it and you saw how ugly and despicable it was and you looked at him and you say, how beautiful and how rich a treasure he is. And you go, how can the two ever meet? But somehow his grace covers that. See, when you're connected with Christ, there's an animation of your soul. There's an electricity that begins to move through you, much like electricity through a motor. The difference between an experience and no experience is the acute senseness, the acute awareness of his closeness. Catch that. The difference between no experience and experience is the awareness of his closeness. Is this something you experience? You know, um, a while back I, I had a job that, that was commuting a lot and I was commuting through Atlanta. And so, as you know, if you're commuting through Atlanta, you spend a lot of time in prayer. <laughs> you do, because you're praying for that person, you're praying for that person, you're praying, God, to keep me safe. And then you're praying, why does everybody have to stop in the interstate? <laughs> and I remember that I would have these moments in the vehicle, and I would just take these moments, and I would jump on them and go, and I would just spend time with God. But then there'll be these other moments where I'm just driving and all of a sudden it felt like God just stepped into the truck. You ever have those? Where you just, you're overcome by the nearness of his presence. You're overcome by this sense of acceptance that, that God, you would accept me? Really, God, me? It's kind of like Jason was saying this morning and probably thought I never thought of, but yeah, it's probably... No one that I've been more faithless to. There's probably been no one that I've failed more times. But he is faithful. You see, there's a great tragedy in the life of any man or woman who can live in the church from childhood to old age and know nothing more than some systematic compound of God. Having no eyes to see and no ears to hear and no heart to love. What greater tragedy could there be in the life of someone who calls themselves a Christian than to be in church from when you're a kid to when you're an adult and never have experienced God? To sit in a service and sing about who he is, but have no revelation of who he is. To listen to words Come off a page and from a, of a preacher of how God God is and how righteous God is and how just God is and all these character and attributes of God to have heard them but they never sink into your heart. What greater tragedy could exist? You see, the spiritual giants of old were men and women who at some time had become acutely conscious of the real presence of God and they maintained that consciousness through their whole existence. The whole book, the whole chapter of, of 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews is dedicated to what they call men and women of faith, these people of great faith. And the thing that made them great in their faith was nothing about them. The fact that God showed up, his presence was near to them, and they recognized it and responded. And the question we have to ask ourselves, church, is do we, can we, are we responsive to the presence of God? And in Mark chapter 2, we're confronted with this powerful question. A question that comes from the deepest longing of our hearts. Because we know that something is broken. We hear the cries of chaos that call out for order. And it's always been the longing of man's heart to create a pathway to God that somehow we might find a repeatable formula or a path that gets us to God. 
And the church has often used worship experience or discipleship class as a method for this. And I've often wondered and wished that there be some method by which we may bring new believers into a deeper spiritual life painlessly by short, easy lessons. But there's none that exist. There's no shortcuts. There's no magic formulas. Yet in knowing this, we still search, don't we? And knowing this, we still hope that maybe there's something that can do it other than my faith in Jesus. Because my faith in Jesus sounds too simple. It sounds too easy. It requires nothing of me other than faith. And yet, I'm built for work. I'm built to work, yet Jesus says, I don't need an employee. I'm built to do, except he says, I don't need a human doing, I need a human being. We're built to conquer, but there's nothing to conquer because he's already conquered. And so we have this great struggle within us, don't we? And I believe in Mark chapter 2, he dives into this. Because in the gospel, we see that the religious culture of the day was off track from where it should be. And here comes Jesus to realign them with their father. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into Mark chapter 2. And in a few minutes, we're going to get through this, right? We're going to get you out on time today. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity, God, to open your word. Because your word speaks. God, your word is truth. God, your word is life. It's nurturing. God, it goes forth and does that which you have spoken to, to do. So this morning as we speak your word, God, as we read from the text, as we talk about the things in the person of Jesus Christ, would you make them evident in us? Because Christ, there's nothing unique in me to stand up here and deliver anything. But the treasure is you. So would you make that more clear this morning in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name. So in Mark chapter 2, you understand and you know it opens up with Jesus in this home and the friends who tear back the roof and lower down this paralytic guy. And he is, here is this par, paralytic who's sitting before Jesus and he's wondering what's going to happen. The four friends who have lowered him down are wondering what's going to happen. And here's the religious elite. They're over here and they're wondering what's going to happen. But Jesus is not wondering what's going to happen. He knows. And he looks at him and says, because of the faith of those guys, your sins are forgiven. Now, the funny thing is, is he addresses this, and I don't want to dig too deep in this because it's been talked about. But Jesus jumps into this, your sins are forgiven. And that elicits a response out of the people in the room. In fact, there is a response. And the response is, who is this that he can forgive sins? And there's this question that Mark poses to us through the Pharisees. And that question is a question I think we all must wrestle with. Who is this that can forgive our sins? Who is this that can solve the deepest longing in our hearts? Who is it that can rescue us? Because I think we can ask that in two different ways. We can ask that as an accusatory, who are you to do this? Or we can ask that and go, who are you that you can do this? That you would deliver me, that you would speak over me the forgiveness of sin. And so Mark puts this question in front of us. And then through this next series of stories, I think he unpacks a little deeper to help us understand the, the answer to this question. And so as you read on in Mark, we get to the next story. And the next story is Jesus is out again. He's doing ministry. And he's walking along the sea. And he's out at the sea because there are so many people, there's no place in town that they can meet. And so he's walking along the sea. And he's, his people are gathered. And he comes up to a man, Matthew, we also know as Levi. And it's a simple statement that Jesus gives Matthew. And he says, follow me. And so in this, we don't know what else transpires. All we know is Jesus looks at him and says, follows me. And then the next it goes to, and Jesus was in the house with Matthew and other sinners. 
And then the Pharisees again. When they see this, they respond, who is this? Why is he eating with them? Why would they be eating? Why would Jesus, who claims to be this son of God, this, the, the one who's righteous, the one who's good, why would he be in the company of sinners? And this is proposed and thrown out. You see, the people of God had turned the work of God into some kind of religion for winners. Think about that. The people of God had turned the work of God into a religion for winners. And there was no room for the weak. But yet Jesus responds to them. He says, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we see in this text that the definition of sinner is not given by Jesus, but it's given by the Pharisees. It's given by the people. And so if by your argument that these are sinners, then wouldn't it denote that they're the most needy? But yet, the one who are pushed far away. I mean, because Matthew wasn't a heathen. He was a sinner. Matthew wasn't some Samaritan. He wasn't a Gentile. Matthew was a Jew. He was an Israelite. He was in the family. And so here, the Pharisees are looking on the brother and casting him away. And Jesus goes, no, 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 this is the brother. You see, Jesus seeks to reveal our weakness so that we may turn to his strength. And in this story, see this with me. Because here's Jesus walking along the sea and he looks at Matthew and he says, you have the wrong master, come follow me. Because see, Matthew had been a master of Rome. Rome was his master. Rome was the one who told him what to do. Rome was the one who separated him from the family. Rome was the one who caused him to be an outcast from his people. But Jesus shows up and says, you're following the wrong master. Come follow me. You see, the closeness of Jesus will reveal in us the misery of our condition. And it will expose the darkness of our hearts in order that we may see that the only hope that we have, the only solution, rests in the atoning blood of Jesus. The closest of Jesus will do that. But in calling Matthew a sinner and eating with the sinners, Jesus reveals the sin in the hearts of others. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were not considered sinners. These were among the righteous. But here when Jesus comes along, when the Gospels are written... They're painted as the sinner. Catch that. When Jesus, when the closeness of Jesus comes, he reveals the darkness. He reveals that we are all sinners. And by opposing Jesus' call to the sinners, they make themselves into the very ones that Jesus came to redeem. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, Paul writes this to Timothy, and he says, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul is writing, that is a true statement. That is a good statement. I know it's kind of tradition, what we hear a lot among church, but that's true. And then he finishes that with, of who I am the foremost. Now, this was written by a man who had studied the law under the best teachers. He had executed the law unto the best of his abilities. And he had served God or his theological construct of God to the best of his ability. But when he encountered the nearness of Jesus, something changed. And he had seen that all of that had piled up to nothing, to his righteousness. In fact, all of that had condemned him more. 
And so here Paul writes, he says, I am the foremost in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect, perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Jesus seeks to reveal our weakness so that we may turn to his strength. Who can save? Who has the power to save? The one who can bring the revelation of our need for saving. Who is this that can cause our hearts to come alive? The one who created. And so Mark is going to set up here. He's going to show us the authority of Christ so that we might believe. But not only that we might believe, that we might be transformed. And I know some of you are sitting here going, wow, I've been saved a long time. What is in this for me? Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, Jesus came to save sinners. But I've been saved for a while. But if we're not careful, we just might miss that the foundational element of our faith is still the rock that gets us through our day to day. Because we will always be searching for another path, another way. Because it's not too easy to become the Pharisee who sits back and begins to judge others, begins to equate our revelation to somebody else's revelation, our understanding to somebody else's. But if we could keep in mind, if we could keep in heart of who we are, if we can see the depth of which he has pulled us from, then we can see the height of which he is taking us. But we can't see the one without the other. So Jesus reveals our weakness. And you may have been saved for a long time, but you still have weakness that is being revealed. And you still have ways in which Christ is making himself known to you. And we can't ever lose that. You know, sometimes it's hard to get rid of stuff, though, isn't it? Like when you've been in, something's been ingrained in you and entrenched in you, and it's become part of you over a long time, it's hard to get rid of. Now, if you know me, and you've talked to me for a little bit, you're going to hear these words come out of my mouth, and they offend a lot of people. I don't know why, but they do. But somehow, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, is some of the most offensive language in the world. I mean, I've been like, yes, sir, before, and I've heard response. Well, the only sir I know is my dad. I'm like, well, okay. I'm glad you know him. Or say it to a lady, and then all of a sudden, you could, should have just told her she was old and ugly. And I'm like, no, I, just, I said, yes, ma'am. And then I always, you know, well, you don't have to call me ma'am. And I go, yes, ma'am. That was beat into me. <laughs> it's not coming out. <laughs> and here, the Pharisees, you know, we want to give them a hard time. But this was ingrained into them. Worship, how they met with God, how they pursued God was ingrained into them. And aren't you glad that Jesus has the grace and the mercy to deal gently with us, to bring us to his revelation? Aren't you glad that he can take someone of the deepest, hardest, whatever tradition or sin or thing you've been locked into, that he can bring you from that? Because Paul is proof. And so we get the first story of Jesus sitting with sinners. And then the second story in which Mark takes us to is... He's questioned, it's called that Jesus is questioned on fasting. And I don't like that title. It's in there and he is questioned about fasting. But I don't think that's where the text is trying to get us to go is to a discourse about fasting. Because if so, I think Jesus would have quoted Malachi. And if you understand and read through Malachi, you, God says, oh, you want to fast? Well, this is what a fast looks like to me. And so here is the, the people, they come up to the Jesus and they go, well, the Pharisees, they fast twice a week. And John's disciples, they fast, uh, but your disciples don't fast. Why is that? And I love the way Jesus responds, don't you? Like he kind of gets to the point, but he does it in a loving, caring way that hopefully opens and unpacks something deeper for us. And so he goes, well, 
When you're with the bridegroom, do you fast or do you feast? And it's obvious the response is you feast, right? I mean, that's the only reason I go to weddings anymore, right? Like, I hope it's going to be good food. And then you've been to the wedding before and you're like, oh, man, <laughs> you've got to have something more than just the cake, right? But when we think of a wedding, and you have to think in the culture of this context, in this time, when they did a wedding, it wasn't just an evening. It wasn't three hours long. You were lucky if it wasn't three weeks long. And they would throw these big parties and they would throw these parades and they would make a big festival and you would come over and they would lavish a party in front of you. And for a week and on, they would celebrate and dance and they would sing and they would laugh and they would tell stories and their families would get to know each other and they would get intertwined. And so Jesus' response was not, can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. You see, Jesus seeks to bring us into his family. And by bringing us in his family, it produces faith in you, and that through his power, your works will please the Father. You see, the religious culture of the day had made religion into this, if you act the right way, and if you say the right things, then you can belong. And so the people, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your disciples acting right? They're not acting like the other religious leaders that we know. Why are you acting different? And Jesus immediately takes them to this bridegroom language because the Israelites would have understood that throughout the whole Old Testament, God continually paints this relationship between the children of Israel and God the Father. That he is the bridegroom, that he is their husband, and that they are his bride, and that they have been unfaithful, but yet he continues to pursue them. And they would have seen their relationship with God in this terms of a wedding. And so he uses this language to bring them back to this understanding of this connective bond, this family relationship. Because in religion, what you do is religion says you need to act this way. And when you act this way, then you need to think this way. And once you've thought this way, then you can belong. But here Jesus comes and he says, you belong to me. And I will put my faith in your heart, will make you believe and come alive. And in that, then you will respond in the proper action. See, they had gotten it backwards. They said, behave, believe, and belong. But Jesus says, belong, believe, and then behave. Jesus says, you belong to me, therefore I will give you the revelation of me, and I will trade your heart for, of stone for a heart of flesh, one that is animated by my power. You see, Jesus is calling us to belong. Marriage is not a relationship of knowledge, but a relationship of experience. You know, when you're dating, you get a lot of knowledge of a person. But when you get married, boy, you really get to know somebody, don't you? My poor wife. <laughs> but you really get to know someone. You know, I didn't realize how bad our eyesight was when we dated, but when we got married, we um, were off on our honeymoon, and we were out snorkeling. And I didn't, uh, at that time, she had lost one of her contacts. And so I'm more the adventurous one, so I signed us up for this uh, snorkel cruise. We go out, way out, with this remote place, and um, there's this big coral reef, and at the edge of it, it just drops off into this utter abyss. It's just blue, and it's a vertical drop-off. And so I'm like, let's swim out over the edge, and she's like, no. I'm like, yeah, come on, it'll be fun. She's like, no. And so we're out swimming, and there's this monk seal that swings by. I don't know if you've ever seen those. And all of a sudden, the terror that gripped my wife just baffled me. I didn't get it. But then again, I didn't realize that all she saw was a blur. 
a blob coming at her. <laughs> and you know, the first thing instills is fear, right? There's a shark, ah! But I didn't know how bad my wife's vision was until that experience. You see, the thing is, is marriage is not a relationship of knowledge, but it's one of experience and the experience of belonging. The life of a Christian involves much more than a personal knowledge of Christ or even good feelings toward Christ. We are to enter into the joys of a spiritual marriage. The bearing of his name, the sharing of his wealth, the walking in his power, enjoying his love and his, perfect, his protection. You see, this isn't about fasting or this isn't about a funeral. This isn't about you getting to deny yourself. This isn't about you losing something. This isn't about you tearing away and putting on a somber face and being upset and being hangry and all these things. No, Jesus is saying, no, I've called you to belong so that you may experience the power and the blessing of being in a relationship. For you take on my name. And then what that comes with that is the power and the authority of Jesus now comes along with us. But so many times we fail to walk in that, don't we? You see, anyone who wants to know Christ must give time to him and count no time wasted, which is spent in the cultivation of his acquaintance. And for you that have been married a while, you, you could probably look back and you see your early years and you couldn't wait to get with that person, could you? And then as you get older, you kind of lose that sense, don't you? I mean, you still want to be with them, but it's just not the same. Because you've kind of become more familiar. But the time you spend doesn't make you love each other less. In fact, it makes it grow deeper. And it's not based on feelings or emotions anymore. It's not based on newness. It's based on commonality. It's based on connectivity. But yet we often want to run to some man who claims to have the power of Jesus. We often want to run to a revival service where they claim to have the presence of God. But in belonging with Jesus, we have everything. He has. In belonging to Jesus, we have everything he has. You know, um, last Sunday when Pastor John was preaching on worship, I couldn't help but think in the midst of that, I always want to be someone who knows how to interpret a moment. I, I don't know, maybe you do, like, when God shows up, you want to kind of be able to interpret that, right? When you're talking with other people and, and God seems to be evident in that conversation, you want to know how to interpret that. And oftentimes that's what I want to be. I want to be good at understanding, interpreting what God is doing. But then as I'm listening, processing this story of this woman who comes before Jesus, you know, it made me think oftentimes we wait for a moment with God. But yet she made the moment with him. So many times we, we wait for God. Okay, God, here I am. Do it. We're waiting. Isn't that often how we approach? Come on, if we're honest. I mean, I know sometimes I do. But yet here's a story of a woman who didn't wait for a moment. I mean, those moments happen. You got Zacchaeus sitting up in a tree. You got Matthew out collecting taxes. You got the disciples who were fishing. But yet this woman, she just shows up and she shows out. Because she didn't need to wait for a moment. She knew who her lover was. And Jesus responds, I am the bridegroom. Jesus is not suggesting that the law should be broken. He is expressing that these cannot be comp completed without him. That his power will be the only strength that's possible for us to live righteous. But we often get them out of order, don't we? We often make them about if we behave the right way, if we believe the right things, then we belong. But Jesus is saying, you belong 
Therefore, I will give you a heart to believe, and therefore, you will have the power to walk out a life of righteousness. Jesus seeks to bring into his family to produce faith in you that through his power, your works will please the Father. And again, Mark takes us to another story in 21 here. And the next story we see is that they've already questioned about fasting. We've already called Levi. And then the disciples are walking through the field and they pick grain and they begin to eat it. And here's the Pharisees. It's almost like you can see them just like hanging out in the back and just peeking, waiting for them to mess up. We've all experienced the spiritual police at the church, right? We can just go ahead and call it that. You know, that person who's just waiting for you to mess up to go, "Uh I told you, right? Come on, we've met them. (laughs) I grew up with a lot of them. We had one, she would sit in the, never mind. So she would sit in the choir and the music was so loud, she just stood up there like this the whole time. I'm like, everybody sees you, woman. But here they are, they're picking grain, they're eating it, and the, and the Pharisees are just, they're ready to point them out. You see, the people of God had turned the work of God into words without power. They lost their meaning. Oh, I skipped a part, didn't I? Man, that was a good part, too. <laughs> All right, we got 10 minutes, right? Finish in 10 minutes. Y'all good for that? <laughs> all right, so I'll go ahead and put a plug in for tonight. Uh, I'm not going to get through all this, which will be fine. So I want to invite you back tonight so we can finish this. But in this, in the previous section, we do have the question about fasting. and Jesus responds about the bridegroom. But after that, he follows up another story. And he says, you don't sew a piece of new cloth onto an old garment. And you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And it's interesting when I think about that, because I have to be honest, when I first read that, I got really offended with God. Anytime you ever read, does any of y'all do that? You read something, you really get upset with God. Because I'm thinking and I'm processing through this, I'm like, no, if you got an old garment and it gets a tear in it, you throw it away, right? You don't just put a new patch on it. But if you are going to patch a garment, you're going to get a garment that's like it. Because once you've wore your jeans and broke them in and you split the knee, I just wear them with a knee split. But some people put patches on. Because they're comfortable, right? You've broken a pair of jeans. They're, they're comfortable, especially if they started out those stiff ones. I don't anybody ever buy the old stiff jeans. Yeah, as a kid, that's what we wore. We wore stiff jeans because <laughs> they lasted longer, right? And once you broke those things in, then they started to wear good. And you didn't want to get another stiff pair of jeans. And you wouldn't put a new cloth on an old pair of, because it'll just rip it out when you go to wash it, right? Because the other one will shrink up. And it'll pull against the threads. And you don't put new, new wine into old wineskins. You know, I started thinking about this. I'm like going... All right, so God, it's the obvious correlation that I'm the wineskin. Now, I've been saved for a while, so that makes me an old wineskin. I've been very offended by this as I'm thinking, processing this. I'm like, God, so that means I'm done? You see, because this is a reference to the law to the old law and the new law that Jesus comes to bring. He is making this parallel for us. That yes, there was these old ways, these old habits in which we would get to God. He says, but I'm bringing a new measure, a new way that brings us to God. One that is explosive inside of you. One that expands inside of you. One that's full of power and authority. One that once it gets inside of you, it can't be contained. And so he correlates this to wine. Now, I don't know if there's any wine officiates in here. Probably not. Probably some in an old life. But uh, we had some Italians that were friends of ours, and they were very well into winemaking. And so you learn a few things when you start 
hanging out with these people. And, you know, they would make a new batch and put it in a bottle, and that bottle would hopefully hold it, and you put the cork in really tight. But in these days, they would put them into wineskins, and so then they would kill an animal. They would immediately take that skin and get it prepared, and they would put the wine in it right away. Because when the skin is flexible and young, it can accept, it can accept that expansion. Because when wine starts to make, there's an expansion process that happens. I won't go into the science of it. It'll bore you. But it expands. And it begins to put pressure against this. And if you put it into an old wineskin, the wineskin will not be able to maintain this pressure. And it'll explode and it'll be wasted. And so if we are to be able to receive this newness of God, then our old wineskins have to be made new. But at some point, you take that old wineskin and you pour it out and you drink it, right? But the beauty is, is this is the one who makes us new again. And the thing with wine, when you, make, when you take these grapes and you go to make wine, you know, the funny thing is, is you don't know what you're going to get until you crack it open, right? And so either you're going to have a fine wine or you're going to have vinegar. And isn't it true in the church a lot of times that people who have been around a long time either are fine wine or they're vinegar? Now, you've met some vinegar in the church, haven't you? Because, you know, there's something interesting that happens in that process. It's, it really has to be a very clean process because if it's not a clean process, if there's any contaminant that gets in there, if there's anything that gets in there with the wine in the process, it'll, it'll mess it up and abuse it every time. It'll break. The, you'll end up with vinegar. You'll end up with something you cannot drink. Because the smallest little thing gets in there and you can't drink it. It becomes vinegar. And a lot of times the smallest little thing in our life will, will happen. It could be a hurt. It could be someone that, a relationship that's gone south. Or it could be something that's happened. God maybe didn't answer the way we thought he should answer. Or something happens and we look and we become bitter instead of sweet. You see, there's a work that Jesus wants to do in us, and our old man can't contain that. And for those of you that have been in church a long time, like me, you've had experiences with God for years and years. Some of you way longer than me. And we get poured out, we get emptied. We have to come back to the one who makes us new again. Amen? We have to come back to the one who makes us new so he can put in new wine again. And that's so often why you'll see people who have been in ministry a long time get burned out. Because they've given and they've given and they've poured out and they've poured out and they've emptied themselves. But they haven't been made new. And you're left with a dried up, withered old wineskin. But it isn't amazing. This is the one who makes us new. The one who renews our hearts and our lives. Lance, if you'll come on up. You see, there's something that has to happen in this gospel that we experience and Worship becomes a great, the gateway into this. And Pastor John's going to be continuing, Lord willing, that, that series for us. Is there maybe something God wants to do in this church? Just celebrated 25 years. That sounds like a wineskin that's been poured out to me. Twenty-five years of ministry. I don't know, eleven, thirteen churches that's been planted in the states and in other countries. Sounds like we've been poured out, doesn't it, church?
So why do we look at this man, Jesus? And why do we answer the question, who has the power to forgive sins? Because the one who has the power to redeem us, to awaken us, has the power to renew us. The one who can speak to dead bones and say, wake up, can speak to a dried out wineskin and say, come alive. Be made new. I'm not done with you. I've got another work for you. I've got greater things for you. I want to pour in the new wine. That new wine's going to explode in you. I want to give you a new vision, a vision that's going to explode in you, but it can't be contained in your old wineskin. It can't be bottled up in the past you. It can't equate to the last ministry you did. Oh, but we've never done it that way. Exactly. Because this isn't about us. It's about him. It's about what he's doing. It's about what he's pouring out in us. It's about what he has purpose for us. What we need most is someone not just with power over death and disease, demons. We need someone with the power over sin. Someone who has the power to redeem, the power to renew, the power to restore. The greatest news is not that God abandons sinners, but he pursues them with the grace and forgiveness. Why does that matter? Because God is not looking for your strength. He's not looking for your wisdom. He's not looking for your righteousness. He didn't call the righteous, but the weakest. I love this. Pastor John says, if this is the case, then why are we trying to unweak ourselves? Why can't we come to God in our weakness? Why can't we come to God in our frailty? Why can't we come to God as old wineskins? She's not looking for experts, but vessels in which he can pour in his spirit. A willing vessel. An old wineskin that can be made new. As we wrap this service up, I just want to invite you. I've got a song that Brooke's going to sing. I want you to listen to this song. Can we make that our prayer church? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you want to respond, will you come let me pray with you? If you're in this place and you're that old wineskin, you say, God, would you make me new? Would you respond? This morning. Amen. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground So I yield to you and to your careful hand When I trust you I don't need to understand Make me your vessel Make me an offering Make me whatever you want me to be oh i came here with nothing but all you have given me jesus bring new wine out of me in the crushing in the pressing you are making new wine in the soil I now surrender you are breaking new ground oh 
suffering Make me whatever you want me to be Oh, I came here with nothing But all you have given me Jesus, bring new wine out of me Carry your new fire today. Cause where there is new wine, there is new power, there is new freedom, and the kingdom is here. I lay down my old flames to carry your new. Church, would you pray with me that in this and I, I do my prayer for us and as we step into this new series that God would do something new in us. To hear a sermon on worship is probably something you've heard several times. So why would God bring us to this other than to do a new work? Bring us to a new place. So Jesus, I surrender my heart. God, and I pray you would do a new work in us. God, that as we look to your word, as we listen to you speak, that there would be a new thing that you would do in us. God, that you would pour a new wine into old wineskins sometimes because you made them new. So God, would you renew us? so that we could receive? Would you restore us, rework in us your gift of redemption so that we can experience you fresh and anew because there's nothing in the world that equals experiencing you. So God, as we go this week, let us carry this. God, stir in us deeply. Work a new thing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed. I want you to remind you that we are having our business meeting afterwards. If you want to stay for that, please stay. Have a great week.